Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of the Bob Lefstetz Podcast. My guest is Oscar-winning director of the movie Icarus, Brian Fogel. Brian, good to have you here. Good to be here. Now, in this particular case, I have a bike-riding friend, and he's going on and on about Icarus, but he gets the Academy screeners, and he sees everything. But I'm sitting in front of Netflix one night, and I start to watch, and I get hooked. This is at the end of the year, long before the Oscar run-up. And if you haven't seen the movie, the movie is really phenomenal. But my first question is, you won the Oscar four months ago. Are you still on a high? March, April, May. Yeah, God, that is crazy. What was it? All of March, April, May. Yeah, four months. Um, I, yeah, I think, I think I'm still on a high o- overall. Um, it's, a, it's a surreal experience to, to go through that, and especially the, the lead-up. Uh, to the Oscars, and um, it's exciting and also an, an overwhelming sense of pressure. Um, and so I think it took me probably a couple months just to decompress from that. And um, But, yeah, it was a, a spectacular experience. It's like being on tour with a rock band. I've mentioned a friend of mine used to work with U2 Management, and they would go on the road for two years, and it would take her a year to decompress. So- I, 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 I can see that. I mean, I was... Um, the film came out in August of, of last year, so almost almost a year ago, and the press started in July, and I was essentially on a an eight-month nonstop uh, press and promotional tour. Um, and so when it ended, uh, essentially uh, after the Oscars, it was kind of like a... All right, now what? Um, and uh, that was that was uh, really uh, some ride. And where do you keep the Oscar? Um, the Oscars just uh, sitting in a hallway. <laughs> I, uh, the the first the first month, um, I wouldn't let it leave my side. I would I would bring it to the kitchen. It would come on the bedside table, <laughs> and then and then when I would leave uh, the house, I was so paranoid um, that I would like put it in like a shoe bag in the trunk of my car um, or just carry it kind of like inexplicably in a, like a, a shoulder bag. Um, and, uh, now it, it seems to kind of have a semi-permanent home and I've put in a really great security system with all sorts of cameras. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, really, really. Let's say hypothetically it did get stolen. Can you get a replacement? I have, I, I really have, uh, no idea because, uh, uh, like they number them. So I have like Oscar number four thousand, I think one hundred thirty six. So I guess that's four thousand one hundred thirty six Oscars in ninety years, something like that. And um, you know they they like didn't give Netflix one, so it would be Oscar only went to myself and my producing uh, partner that the Academy uh, recognized, Dan Kogan. So I I don't really know what what protocol is. Um, I do feel like I already need to bring it back for a polishing, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, yeah. it starts to age. So now that you've... Oh, first thing, uh, Kobe Bryant was rejected for admission just recently to the Academy. Have you tried to get in? Um, well, I, I, I haven't heard. I think they announce. Um, and, uh, you know, each of the... Uh, it's all through the various branches that decide. So I was automatically eligible and considered because I won uh, the Oscar, but apparently it's not it's not a given. Um, so um, I guess I'm going to hear 
sometime in the next couple weeks or something. Um, I hope the the branch let me in. It's it's by branch, so the so the dock branch. These uh, three hundred fifty members, and I and I've been told there's like thirty or forty on the committee, basically decide uh, who they allow into the branch, and I think they allow in maybe five, ten people a year. Um, well, unlike Kobe, you have history in film, so your odds are pretty good, but you never really know. So let's go back. You're from Denver. Uh, grew up in Denver. Uh, my family's still there. Went to school in Boulder. Uh, well, let's go back. What did your father do for a living? Um, wow, this is great. Nobody has asked me this uh, in an interview. Um, my dad uh, retired from law about, I guess, probably four years ago, and he was a uh, uh, he started as a as a U.S. district attorney. So he's one of the uh, uh, youngest. Uh, U.S. district attorneys ever. He got a district uh, attorney uh, right out of law school. Um, and this was in Denver? Yeah. And then he was a uh, uh, he was a prosecutor. Um, he went into private practice and most of uh, the, at least in the first probably two-thirds of his career, it was mostly criminal law. Um, and then uh, in the later part of his practice, my dad's 75 now, um, he, you know, branched off into all sorts of stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, great great guy. I got to see him for Father's Day. And why did he retire? Um, I think, uh, you know, it was a combination of, uh, uh, I think he called it, you know, I think at about 70. And um, I think also the, the law practice changed a lot. He was never, um, he never had a firm. He was um, uh, in private practice his whole life. He always said, I... I didn't want the stress of a firm, didn't want the stress of employees. I mean, he, I think he found it stressful enough having a paralegal and a, and a secretary and finding good people. Um, and I think, you know, I think the, the, the business changed a lot. Um, and also, I think he just uh, was, was ready to kind of, you know, he, he's involved in all sorts of other things, a lot of charity stuff. Um, he just, uh, I think he has, a, he has a lot of other interests. And your mother, did she work outside the home? Um, growing up, no. Uh, I have a, a, an older sister uh, who lives in Denver, married, and I have a, a younger brother who's an artist. So you're the middle kid? In New York. Yeah, I'm the middle okay, kid. Okay, so how, I'm a middle kid too. How much older is your older sister? How much younger is your younger brother? My older sister is uh, almost three years older than me, and uh, my younger brother is five years uh, younger than me. And I and I guess uh, I was kind of the 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 bully among my family, but not not intentionally. I, I was like getting bullied in school, so I'd come home and be a terror. Well, I, wait, I feel, wait, but you using the parents. term bully? How did you bully inside the house? I I, I don't. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I mean, you would probably have to ask my brother. So but, he uh, said you were the bully. Yeah, and there was. Um, I remember was, this was probably 15 years ago. Uh, so you're uh, all, you're you're a guy. I can ask you, how old are you today? Uh, Forty four. Okay. Yeah. So when you're like almost thirty, what happens? Um, my um, uh, yeah, it's actually no. It was now no. It was more like when I was like twenty five, twenty six, and uh, and I remember um, I'm home visiting, and my brother um, uh. Had he was very very upset with me and hurt with me and he had never he had never actually talked to me about this, um, 
and he had had like these recollections from from childhood that that essentially that you know that I that I you know was was bullied him and um, and I think he was right because I was having a hard time in school I was always kind of the the little guy getting picked on and so then I would come home from school after being picked on and and pick on my my younger brother so do you think playing that role in school affected your career path or your success uh, absolutely a hundred percent I think uh, uh, I had a I had a really uh, stable childhood from a family perspective my parents are still married there was no drama in the home there was there was none of that stuff that you, that you hear you know my, uh, where you know people grow up and have parents that are alcoholics or addicts or has divorce and all that stuff so none of that was um, was was present in my home um, but uh, uh, for whatever reason I think as a, as a kid I grew up always feeling like an outsider I was always I was always kind of like the the short kid, uh, and um, and I think as as I became an adult, um, especially because cycling, which was a lifelong thing for me, just um, it's it's a masochistic sport. Like you really have to uh, really like to suffer, and the guys who can suffer the most basically do the best. Well, on top of that, and genetic ability, but a lot of it just comes down to how much you're willing to suffer, and. Um, and I basically had done that my whole life, uh, riding. And I think uh, um, in Icarus and in other things in my life, um, I don't know when to uh, – I, I don't stop. I just I, – I get something in my mind and I'll just Okay, well, it worked out through. with Icarus. Are there other times when it didn't work out? Um, that's an interesting question. Um yeah, there was certainly other times when when it didn't work out. Um, before Icarus, I um, uh, essentially right when I uh, when I turned thirty, um, I prior to that uh, for several years I was in stand up comedy. I was um, uh, I was acting and writing, and um, and um, I basically wrote. Uh, and starred in uh, this play called Jutopia, and um, uh, opened it up. Uh, I wrote it with a with a friend of mine, Sam Wolfson, and there's a whole story behind that how 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 that came together. And we opened it up in L.A. Uh, and it became a, a pretty substantial hit. Uh, so, how many years ago was that? This uh, it started in 2003, mm-hmm. and then uh, we played about three four hundred shows in L.A. Uh, brought it to New York, and then it played in uh, in New York for three and a half years, uh, and it was it was a big hit. Uh, we had productions of it running in, in other cities, um, and I did a book, created a traveling show, um, another show outside of that, um, and you know, and and, and I and in, inadvertently basically trapped myself into this world. I was now essentially the Jutopia guy, uh, which I would liken to being probably like David Schwimmer on Friends or, <laughs> or Jason Alexander on right. Seinfeld. I mean, nobody, nobody saw me outside of essentially basically I was the Jutopia guy. And, and, and I, was, uh, I, I personally performed uh, as the star of this production probably 
1,500, 1,600 shows. And it was an interesting kind of be careful what you wish for because um, I was a struggling actor, writer, comedian. Suddenly I basically wrote a role for myself, created the show, produced the show, and it was now a hit. Now I was trapped in the show. And, um, and during this period of time I realized that I really didn't want to act anymore. And what I wanted to do was, was direct and produce because that, that to me um, was uh, more akin to my personality, which is being able to kind of oversee the, the bigger picture of it. And what I found all of a sudden as I started getting success with the play and I went out on auditions, auditions for a short amount of time, I suddenly would kind of go in and being like, wait, I'm the, I'm the star and creator of this, of this really re- you know, successful show and now all of a sudden I'm coming in and, and auditioning for a Doritos commercial or auditioning for you know, a, a couple lines on a TV show and, it, and, it, and, I, and I didn't like it. So I decided that I wasn't going to do that anymore. I didn't. I had no interest in auditioning, and that I would, and that I really wanted to direct because I was directing um, the show, you know, inadvertently as well by producing it, and I was, um, you know, in charge of all the casting. And so when cast members would leave the show, and then other cities of the show, so um, sitting on the other table watching actors audition made me never want to audition again. And um, so I decided that I wanted to um, uh, adapt the play into a movie. And Sam and I basically adapted it into a screenplay. And um, I wanted to direct it, held on to direct it. And it took me about five years to get um, what was a million and a half dollars to to make the film. And uh, and. It was um, it was a, one of the worst experiences of my life. Uh, I was supposed to have a 26-day shoot that turned into uh, a 19-day shoot uh, a week into the production. Um, so we had boarded the entire production. I had found all my locations. And um, uh, the financier had decided that he was going to try to make this film non-union in Los Angeles with a cast that included Jennifer Love Hewitt and Rita Wilson and Tom Arnold and Peter Stormare and Jamie Lynn Siegler and all these other, John Lovitz, there's all these guys in it. And, um, and so a week into the production, of course, the, the union came knocking saying, hey, what, what, what are you guys doing? And instead of ponying up what would have been a couple hundred thousand dollars more, they took a week out of my shooting schedule. Uh, so all of a sudden, uh, I had another basically uh, two weeks to do what was supposed to be done in, in three weeks. Um, and uh, I was given eight days to do uh, my director's cut. Uh, and under the DGA, the Director's Guild, um, you're required, the director is required, I think, a, a minimum of six or eight weeks. And the film was non-DGA, which was a lesson that I learned not to make a non-union film ever again. And I was given eight days. And, um, and then uh, they decided not to sell the film, and they decided that they would release it straight onto On Demand. Um, so they put it into uh, theaters on a Sunday at 2 o'clock in the morning, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, to pretend that it was in theaters now. And so, of course, there was no money ever spent to market the film. There was no money to promote the film. And the film left me in director's jail. Uh, I had invested the last amount of money that I had into the film, 
and I came out of this experience essentially broke and beaten up, uh, really, really depressed. And, um, and I went through a really, really hard time. And, uh, and I didn't know uh, if I was going to be able to uh, continue to find another place within the entertainment industry to continue to create. And um, I started looking at other businesses and I started getting back into cycling. And cycling for me was essentially my therapy. And, um, and so I was riding my bike a ton trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life and how I was going to pay my bills. Um, I was even thinking about moving back to Colorado. And uh, Lance confessed. And That's Lance Armstrong, Lance the winner Armstrong. of multiple tours de France. And it was now basically the beginning of 2013. And, and he confesses, and I'd been really kind of back into shape on the bike. And, you know, everybody in the sport and anybody rides always, A, was wondering, did he dope or not? And B, you know, I think anybody who's ever been into endurance sports or real, a real athlete wonders, hey, what, what would these drugs do for me? What would these PEDs do for me? And, and did you believe he was a doper before he confessed? I was on the fence um, because uh, uh, he was like my hero, like uh, as I think he was way beyond cycling. I mean, he was arguably the biggest athlete on planet Earth and the most well-known athlete on planet Earth, much more so than even Le LeBron James or because he was he was so international. Um, <clears throat> so there was that part of me that always believed, no, he couldn't, no, he wouldn't. But then as the years went by. And you, and you realize that everybody else, you know, had confessed to doping, had been caught for doping, the guy who got second place, third place. And then you'd read all these, like, journals basically going, whatever, these numbers and his watts per kilo and all this stuff seems uh, unfathomable. But um, I wasn't so shocked that he had doped. But what really caught me about it was the way that they got him which was they, they got Lance kind of like Al Capone on tax evasion. It, they, they never caught him how the system was supposed to catch him, which is, you know, the guy uh, uh, had, had managed to this day to pass every single... Uh, but there was uh, one that he beat him. where he was a, it was a positive and he explained it away. Yeah, that, but that was back way, way into in the early part of his career, if right. I remember. That was like 1999 and right. they didn't kind of really have the true evidence. Um, but, I mean, the way that they get him is basically by launching a criminal investigation and all of his teammates now under essentially, you know, uh, a criminal testimony uh, admit to doping in exchange – for essentially immunity and rat Lance out, you know, in the process. And I'm going, wait, wait, wait. Uh, should we be mad at Lance or should we be like, like looking at this system and going, what sort of fraud is this? That the only way that you can catch an athlete after 500 tests is through launching a criminal investigation and getting all of his teammates who did the same thing as he did, uh, rat him out in, his, in exchange for his own uh, you know, uh, in, in exchange for uh, their own immunity. And, and so I, I started going, wait, there, there is a bigger story here that people are not looking at. And that story to me was that the global anti-doping system, nothing to do with cycling really, just all of sport. Because if you're going, the most tested athlete on planet Earth, uh, 
has been managed to as managed for 10, 15 years to get around the system. Well, what about every other athlete on planet Earth and all the sports that they're hardly been doing any testing on? So, so I got this essentially this idea that I wanted to go on like a super size me journey, prove that the anti-doping system was a fraud. And inadvertently, I was hoping to kind of redeem my hero, uh, Lance, and show that this guy was essentially a needle uh, in the global haystack. Uh, and of course, what transpired uh, ended up being, you know, a, a million times crazier and bigger than anything I, I could have imagined as, as I set out. Um, but, but that was what, what set me on uh, the journey. And, and as I started on this journey, it took me about a year to raise uh, the first bit of money to get going. Which was how much? Uh, 350000 Could your father help you out? No. Uh, Why do you think? He had helped me. Uh, he had put a little bit of money into the, uh, into the movie, and that didn't pay back. And, and I didn't. Uh, my father's not a wealthy guy. You know, he's, he's, he's done fine, but he's retiring. Um, you know, my, my parents are just very, very they're fine. They're not wealthy. Well, let's just go back here a little bit. So you go to school. You're the young person. You're the outcast. What what age do you start riding bicycles? I started riding bikes when I was um, 13 years old. Um, and what kind of had happened is I had I had been playing soccer and baseball, and I wasn't really good. So I, um, baseball, I was essentially the the Jew on the baseball team, and um, and growing up in Denver. Uh, I, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, and um, I was essentially the Jew, um, and uh, I was the Jew on the soccer team, and um, and uh, cycling, for me, is a really it's a very individual sport. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of team elements, and ultimately the guys, you know, once you get on a team, it is a lot of teamwork, but the sport in and of itself is not dependent on this kind of you know, like a baseball team or a soccer team. And, um, and it was right about the time that um, Greg LeMond won the first tour in 1986. And um, I had a friend of mine in middle school, and his brother essentially got into cycling. I was in seventh grade, and he got a bike. And I was like, oh, this looks kind of cool. And so um, I wanted to buy a bike, and I detailed cars all summer. I started up a little car detailing business where people would bring their car uh, over to my parents' house in the morning from around the neighborhood. I'd wash and wax the car, charge them, I don't remember, 35 bucks, and I saved up $600 to buy uh, my first bike. Which was what brand? It was a Trek. It was a purple Trek with yellow uh, tape on the handlebars. And How many was, speeds? I think at the time it was probably 12. It was 12 okay. speed. And, um, and I got on this bike and I was I was on my way. I mean, I uh, I grew up with asthma my whole life, and and the doctor always said, oh, you know, you, you shouldn't ride a bike. You can't ride a bike. Um, but I I got on that bike, and and um, it was it was just kind of like my freedom. And I and I started riding every day uh, after school. I would. I'd Had come you home. seen Breaking Away? Um, yeah, it's seen breaking away. So uh, you're now riding a, independently, or you're saying I'm going to get myself in shape to enter competitions. Or yeah, it was uh, I was ski racing in the, in the winters. And How successfully? Not well. 
But, mm-hmm. but you know, I would started ski racing when I guess I was probably about 12. So and I that ski- was where? Uh, in Colorado. But where? At Winter Park. Okay. Uh, which is um, a mountain about 90 minutes from Denver. And um, I started skiing when I was about three years old and, and decided I wanted to race. And, and that was also part of the cycling, which was all the guys who were skiing – it was cycling in the summer. Right. It's like a, a, both of those sports. If you talk to any real skier, they ride. They're cyclists. And if you talk to any real cyclists, they're skiers generally. Um, and uh, so I had started ski racing basically a year before that and decided the cycling would be a good way to stay in shape. And, um, and, it, and it also has got a real kind of solo element to it. And, um, yeah, so I started riding – Okay, so when you Every you day. obviously had a bike before that, but now you have a bike that you can actually, let's say, compete with. Right. At what point did you th- enter after getting the bike the competitive system? Pretty much right away, like oh, really? within 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 like the next year. So the first kind of summer, I I got into it. Then I got really into it, and there was these races in Colorado uh, called the uh, Red Zinger Mini Classics. Um, like Red Zinger Tea Celestial yes, Seasonings, which exactly. are from Colorado. Exactly. And um, and they were also at the time sponsoring um, uh, the Bigger Bike Race, which I can't remember what the cool. name well, was. They the, the, they had, well, they had the Coors Race. There they was the Coors Classic. Tour, Tour of Colorado. <clears throat> yeah, and that Tour of Colorado was in recent years. But it was, um, it was a Coors Classic, and um, uh, Michael Eisner uh, was developing, uh, was promoting all those races, and I have got to know him over the last year. Awesome guy. And... Um, so the Coors Classic was going on, and the Red Zinger Mini Classic was kind of like, you know, what the kids were doing. And, and during the summer, basically, I think it was every other week, there was another Red Zinger Mini Classic. They were two-day races, like on a Saturday, Sunday, three stages, a time trial, a road race, and like a criterium or a circuit race. And I started doing those when I was, I think I was 13 when I did my first one, and, I, and then every year... Uh, and how did you comp- how well did you do in that? So I was I was basically the guy who was um, better than ninety percent, but never uh, never won. So uh, asthma was a huge thing for me, and what would happen is is I would start the race, I'd have to have my asthma attack, I'd have an asthma attack, and then I would take an inhaler and this that and the other, and then after the asthma attack, I would recover. And then I'd spend the entire race catching back on. And then <laughs> well, was there like a then, preventive way? Yeah. Can't you use like the inhaler well, before you get was, out? The, well, that was the thing. At the time, what I was using was um, this nebulizer solution, which is like this machine. I mean, you look like, you know, uh, Frankenstein or something, and you're puffing on this machine, and there's, there's neb, you know, solution coming out of it. And so I would... So I'd take this nebulizer solution like in the parking lot. You'd have to, I'd find some place to like plug it in outside the race. I mean, I remember this. And that would dilate my lungs and hopefully I wouldn't have the asthma attack. But uh, most of the time I would have the asthma attack. And then I'd spend the whole race catching back on. But if it was a mountain stage, if it was a climbing stage, because I was always kind of like, a, you know, I've got a climber's build. Um, I eventually knock off ev- almost everybody and finish like fifth or sixth. But I never won. Um, but just so I know, if one is an asthmatic, is that a banned drug? Well, and that's a whole other thing, which is which is interesting. So, like this whole thing with Chris Froome, if the guy's won, I think what has he won? Four Tour de France's now. Uh, you know, he's under this whole investigation for using uh, sal- salm- salmabuterol, 
which is the drug uh, which totally changed my life. So um, I guess probably about when I was 20 years ago or something, a drug by the name of Advair came on the market, which is flucosamine and sal salmabuterol. And this drug essentially stops you from having asthma, prevents asthma, just flat out and prevents And you take asthma. it 24-7. No, drug. you just take – I take a puff of this every morning, just one like – it's like a discus. And in my mind right now, I don't have asthma. I haven't had an asthma attack in, in 20 years. But if I stop taking this drug in 24 hours from now, I will be reminded that I have asthma. So it's crazy. I mean this drug completely stops asthma. Uh, but if you take too much of it or whatever, what they're saying Froome did, uh, it's it's a banned substance. Um, but had this drug been on the market when I was growing up and when I was racing, who knows? I mean, my life might have been very different. Okay, so you're racing at age 13. You race all through high school? Race all through high school. And then um, my first year in college. How did you decide to go to Boulder? Well, I went to Boulder. Um, I had gotten into Middlebury. On That's the where East I went. Coast. You went to Middlebury. <laughs> wow. So I almost went to Middlebury. Uh, where all the Nordic skiers were bike right, racers back in my days. Right, because I was looking at basically a place that I could basically ride my bike and ski. And I went and like visited and I was like, wow, this is really cold. And the, <laughs> and, and the mountains are, are nowhere as big and beautiful as Colorado. The cycling doesn't look anywhere as good as Boulder. I was like, you know, I think I'll, I think I'll stay home. And I think my parents also were kind of going like, wow, Middlebury is going to cost a lot of money. And you got Boulder in your backyard. And, and I loved Boulder. Um, and it looked like, you know, and I had been going up there cycling. I wanted to stay, you know, close to, to skiing. I loved Vail and, and all the mountains. And so I decided to go to, to Boulder. And, um, and uh, I was racing. Uh, and I got sponsored by a team in Canada, and um, and I was 19 at the time, 18, and uh, I'm in this horrific bike crash, and I lose uh, seven teeth. Wow. Yeah, and um, and all of these are, every single one of them are basically, um, I had to have root canals, so I had to have eight eight root canals. Um, you know, they I didn't lose them; they were shattered, and the teeth died. And I basically spent like two years with like plastic teeth in my mouth as they were doing root canals. And that's wonders for your dating life. Yeah, it was just it was it was really bad. And what it and what it did was it made me like essentially not want to race a bike anymore because you have to be fearless. And so now I'm basically back on the bike, and and when you're racing, you know you're you're within you know an inch of the other guy's wheel, and. I'm going, wait, I don't want to basically lose all my teeth again. So uh, suddenly I'm, I'm riding, you know, defensively instead of offensively. And, and I, and I kind of realized that this was not essentially the career that I wanted for myself. Um, but it's just such a, a brutal sport and very few people ever make any, a, a living in it. Unlike the, you know, NBA, where there's whatever it is, 850, 900 players in the NBA, and the guy who's making the least amount of money is still making like 700,000, a million a year or something like that. In cycling, basically nobody is making any money other than Lance Armstrong, you know? Right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I said, huh, maybe this is not the, uh, the career path for me. We'll take a quick break and come back with more of my conversation with Oscar-winning filmmaker Brian Fogel 
Recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Most of the time, I talk to musicians like Shirley Manson of Garbage or industry executives like Motown president Ethiopia Habtamaria. But sometimes we go off the beaten path with our guests like Tony Hawk. And this week, I'm speaking with Brian Fogel, the mastermind behind the documentary Icarus. Whether you come for the music, the tech business, or otherwise, be the first to hear next week's episode by subscribing to the Bob Left Sets podcast on TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice. While you're there, be sure to rate and review the podcast. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Brian Fogel. Once you stop competing, do you stop riding your bike, or are you still continuing to ride your bike? No, I, I kept riding, and... Um and I took a uh, – so I kept riding through through college, but it just really became like a hobby. And in the back of my mind, I was always going to race again, but but I didn't. And um, and then I moved out to Los Angeles. Well, before you go, so you're in college. Yeah. Are you studying acting, entertainment things? No, I was, um, I was studying sociology and psychology. And the reason why is um, – Basically, like the entire football team was sociology majors, and I I didn't view myself as like going into like a graduate program. I, I didn't see myself as being a doctor or a lawyer. I'd always kind of been entrepreneurial, and um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wasn't going to be a scientist or a, or something that required like a, a real graduate degree. So, um, so I studied those two things, and um, and after college, I moved to Aspen. Well, before you moved to Aspen, now you're in college. Are you still the runt, or do you fit in in college? Now I'm starting to fit in. Okay, and then you moved to Aspen to be a ski bum. Um, I yeah, I essentially moved to Aspen um, after college with the idea that I would um, ski and um, ride my bike and. Um, and I had uh, started up a, a, a little business with a friend of mine where we were essentially um, uh, having computers manufactured um, and, uh, uh, and selling them uh, through, through the classified ads at the time uh, where, you know, like kind of like what Dell was doing but, you know, on a microcosm level where we would advertise essentially, you know, build a computer and, you know, we'd put ads in classifieds, and so I could be anywhere to do that. And, uh, and I had a company, and I was like 21, 22 at the time, and I had like a, a company uh, that I was contracting through in Los Angeles. And, uh, and so I was, I was doing that, went to Aspen, and um, had come out to L.A., Los Angeles, a few times, and loved it, and just liked the weather. I just um, kind of fell in love with the city and and decided that I would. So how long were you back. in Aspen? A little bit less than a year. Okay, a year. so you come to L.A., you like the weather, you have the computer business. At what point do you say, hmm, I want to go into the entertainment business? So I guess I'm probably <clears throat> 23, 20, 24 at the time. And um, this was actually 19, uh, it was 90, 97. And, um, and I'm, uh, uh, I'm living in uh, Beverly Hills area uh, and and I'm working out at this this gym called Crunch 
uh, on Sunset in West Hollywood, and um, and I meet this and I meet this girl. Uh, we date for a short amount of time, and my whole life I was always doing um, voices, accents, like like when I was a kid I would leave. Um, like my parents had a phone, a phone recording device, you know, a, uh, an answering machine, which nobody uses anymore. And I guess I would, I would leave what would probably be considered like, you know, unacceptable uh, accents on, on their machine, just pretending to be someone, you know, like whatever, you know, like, hi, you just reached the Fogel family, leave a message, you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, and so I was always doing voices and impressions. And this girl was like, you know, you know, have you ever thought about doing comedy? You should, you should do comedy. You're missing your calling. What, what are you doing in Los Angeles selling computers? You, you should be a, a stand-up comedian. And I go, huh, maybe I should. And I decide to take a, a stand-up comedy class. It was a, a class at the, the Improv. And the class was like a, a six-weeks class or something like that, once a week. And at the end of a class, basically, you hustle all your friends to come to the Improv and your friends have to buy drinks and everything, but the show's free, and they get to witness basically the stand-up comedian class basically performing at like 5 o'clock on a, on, a, on a Tuesday at the Improv kind of thing. So I, I do this like six-week class. I get up there, uh, you know, and do my whatever it was, five minutes, ten minutes. I, I don't remember. And I thought, wow, I really like this. I, I want to be a comedian. And how did you go over? Um... That evening, I went over really well because it was a it was a warm room. There were there were a lot of friends that I had convinced to come to watch me, and I was um, uh, I was doing like um, like prop comedy where I just you know, was <laughs> you <laughs> and carrot top. It was, like, it was like carrot top. It was really bad. It was really bad, and uh, it's like oh hey, I'm gonna go do comedy, and um, so I start doing like open mics at the at the comedy store and the laugh factory and you know and that world is kind of dark you're basically like standing in line all day to like go on for like a, a three minute spot um you know whenever they do their open mic nights um and i did that for probably about a year and a half two years and i and i, I it's like hmm, i don't think this is for me and because the life is too hard or success is too hard, why do you decide to say this isn't for you? You know, I, I was doing a lot of like improv classes too and my personal experience was in the clubs. Um, There's just all these like comedians like fighting for a couple minutes on stage and it was kind of like a dark underbelly um, behind – like, you know, you get on stage and all of a sudden your whole job is to be funny. But like the the guys who were trying to get up and it was just it was it's a it's a really strange world. And, and anybody who's who's went through this, and I'm sure any any comedian that's went through this would 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 say this as well. Um, and uh, I just found it just kind of like dark and depressing. And and here I was basically like standing on a sidewalk for for eight hours trying to get like a, a three minute spot you know, to, to go up at the comedy store. And I'm like, this just, this just isn't, isn't great. And, um, so I decided that I wanted to, you know, uh, get into acting and take acting classes. And so... Meanwhile, continuing to support yourself building computers. No. So I had, um, I'd got, I had gotten out of the, the computer, uh, business and 
uh, I had like sold my clients to this uh, to the company that that was was building the PCs, and uh, and I had a little bit of money like like tucked away, and so I decided that um, while I was essentially uh, acting, that I was going to be a, a day trader in stocks, <laughs> and. Uh, so I was like, um, you know, 24 years old. And you're going to beat the system because you're yeah. just that smart. And the uh, and and tech stocks, if you remember at this time, were going crazy, like Cisco, Microsoft, Oracle. I mean, you couldn't lose. I mean, you know, and 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 all these stocks were going through the roof. But then there were all these like um, tech companies. I remember it was like I two ITWO and JDSU and Broadcom and all these and. And they were just, you know, going through the roof. And so I start going into stocks, just, you know, I'm taking acting classes, I'm doing comedy and improv, I'm, so I'm trying to find a way in, into the business, but I'm basically going to, you know, uh, make uh, pay my bills through day trading. And this was working great for about <laughs> about a year. And... Uh, and so I had uh, – and I had never taken a class in it or anything. But, I mean, you really couldn't lose. I mean, just – Yeah, it went up before it went up, down. Up and, up. and then I realized that there's option trading. Oh, boy. Which is, which is essentially the, the kiss of death, which, you know, uh, basically you can just buy uh, – own the stock for a fraction of a stock price. So you can buy like 1,000 shares when you could have only really afforded to buy, you know, 50 shares. But when you lose – you basically lose like you like you had a thousand shares. You get wiped out really quick, but you can make big gains. So I was trading options. I mean, it was it was going really really well. And then uh, this was 1999, and the uh, the, the whole tech uh, market crashed, and overnight these stocks went from like I don't know two hundred dollars a share to like two dollars a share. And I was in options, and I got wiped out and. It was. It was, and suddenly I was back to okay. Now, how am I actually gonna gonna support myself as as a as an actor? Um, so, so I start up this uh, this showcase company, um, and and the concept was is I I had been trying to break into acting and 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 in in Los Angeles. And these things are still going on. They have all these like cold reading workshops and acting workshops and, and, and they're scam operations. You go in, you pay 50 bucks and you read for like some like casting director's assistant or some manager's assistant or some agent's assistant and they'll advertise it like, you know, whatever, some legitimate, you know, agency manager. But it's not even – it's like it's a, it's a total scam. And so I'm, so I'm doing these cold reading workshops and these agent workshops, trying to get an agent, trying to get seen. And I'm realizing that this is a scam. And I decide that I'm going to put together essentially this, this showcase that's not going to be a scam, that I'm going to bring in legitimate industry people and I'm going to have the work critiqued um, because that was essentially what I was missing from all these workshops. You do these workshops and you'd go, OK, well, what did you think of me? And are you actually going to call me in for a meeting or do you want to represent me? And, and 99 times out of 100, you would just do this thing and, and leave with this big question mark in your mind, but you'd be 50 bucks, you know, poor. So I decided I'm going to put together this, um, this uh, actor's showcase and um, I rent a theater and I start advertising in Backstage West and 
uh, lo and behold, there's a real need in, in the marketplace for this. So I start putting together these showcases where essentially, you know, uh, I put up like 12 five-minute scenes and I would direct all the scenes. I'd, I'd team the actors together. I'd give them material out of plays or something that, that I had written basically just to see how it would go over. Uh, and, I would, and I would team everybody up. They would go work on, on their scenes, come back and rehearse, and then I'd put together this showcase and I'd four-wall a theater. I'd bring in a light guy, a sound guy, you know, put basic furniture on the stage and bring in all these agents and managers and casting directors, but they would actually critique the work. So, so the actors, myself included, would come out of this and go, hey, you like me, you didn't like me, you actually want to take a meeting with me, you, you want to, you know, whatever. And um, so I, I started doing this and about um, two years into it, um, and I was holding these showcases probably every other month, but I was paying my bills. You know, it was, it was just, it was enough to get by, plus, plus I was actually getting on stage and working and getting my work critiqued. Um, and I meet this guy who had come in to do the showcase with me, and we decide that we're going to write a 10-minute scene for for the showcase. And we come up with this concept for the scene, then the, and the scene is basically going to be an a Jewish guy and a Christian guy, and they're at a Jewish singles mixer. And we went, well, why are they each there? And we decided that essentially the, the Christian guy was at the Jewish singles mixer because he wanted to m meet and marry a Jewish girl so he'd never have to make another decision in his life. <laughs> and, and the Jewish guy was at the, was at the singles mixer because his mother had forced him to be there, but what he really wanted to do was you know run off with an Asian and this was the worst thing in the world, and that the Christian guy had basically convinced the Jewish guy to teach him how to pretend to be a Jew so that he could basically marry a Jewish girl so he never had to make another decision. So we put up this 10-minute this scene uh, at the showcase, and it went crazy, and people were laughing, and, and I had never heard a reaction to this and anything that I had done from stand-up comedy to all the acting classes, plays, nothing, and... Um, and Sam and I go, hey, we're, we're, we, maybe we're on to something. And so we perform the scene over the, like, the next four or five months and start thinking, hey, do, do we turn this into like try to write this as a TV pilot? Do we try to write this as a movie? And theater is what made sense to me because I said, oh, hey, this is – we could do this. We can put, put on a play. And so we spend the next year writing essentially this 10-minute scene into – a full-length play, and um, and when we're done writing this play, uh, I had been introduced to uh, Elliot Gould, and um, and I had been introduced to, to him through uh, Frank Yablons, who the producer, yeah, who passed away a few years ago, and Frank had had run Paramount, and he had run MGM. He was kind of like a a, a legend, and um, and Frank read the play, loved it. He said, "I think maybe Elliot would like this." He gives it to Elliot, and Elliot likes it. And I go and meet with Elliot Gould at like five o'clock in the morning at Nate Nows. <laughs> and this was the craziest thing because Elliot, um, I wonder if to, if this day, to this day, he probably still does this. I mean, like he would like to go to Nate Nows at like five in the morning because there was nobody there and he wouldn't get hassled, but he wanted to be at Nate Nows. I remember we, we go to meet Elliot and it's literally like five in the morning, five thirty in the morning. And, and the day before, 
he had like called us and you know caller ID on the on the phone. It shows up Elliot Gould. I'm like, oh my god, Elliot Gould's calling. You know, and I answered the phone. He's like, hi. He's like, hi. This is Elliot Gould. <laughs> and I'm like, hey Elliot. He's like, you want to have uh, breakfast with me? I'm like, yeah. What time? He's like, how's Five in the morning at, at eight thousand. I'm like five in the morning. <laughs> he goes, yeah, they open at five or five thirty. I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> you know, there's really a part of me that's gonna go, you know, how, and I and I remember I go, you know, how's like, how's like maybe seven in the morning. He's <laughs> like, you know, I really like to go at like five in the morning. I'm like, okay, fine, five in the morning. I went, like, this is gonna be nuts. So I'm, go and sit down with Elliot Gould. And um, and he agrees that he'll basically kind of like host this reading workshop of of this play, like Elliot Gould presents. Um, and it turns out that he that he uh, that what he had really connected to in the play um, was basically uh, the play is kind of uh, had like all this um, uh, circumcision elements in it and. Um, and Elliot was not in favor of circumcision, and uh, and he just and he really thought that that was that was great in the play, and um, so he hosts this this uh, this reading, and we bring out like a couple hundred people over a couple nights uh, to try to back uh, this play. We need like eighty thousand dollars to do it, and um, a few hundred people show up, and we're trying to get everybody whatever donate a couple hundred bucks, five hundred bucks, whatever. And not a, no one is willing to essentially finance this play. And um, uh, so we decide to rack up my credit cards. And uh, my parents loaned me a, a little bit of money, but not much. Is just really just going for it. And uh, put together a whole production and opened, a, opened up the, the play in, in Los Angeles. And it became a, a hit. And in 1990. 99 Seat Theater at the Coast Playhouse in West Hollywood on San Marco Boulevard. It opened up in, um, I think it was May 3rd or something, 2013. And the LA Times gave us like a rave. And suddenly, you know, you could not get a ticket to this show for, for six months. I mean, they were just lined up. Now how many performances a week? Uh, we were doing five shows a week and the theater was 99 Seat. But what we had done is we had turned it into like a 120-seat theater. We had stacked in all these chairs into there, totally against fire code. Right. But, you know, we we were selling the seats. And uh, and within about a month and a half, two months, I, I'd recouped the play. And suddenly I was making a living essentially as an actor uh, in in my own play uh, that, that I was producing. And, um, and that... It went on for the next five years, six and years. And before the uh, the movie, did you have any money in the bank? Was this lucrative in any way? Um, I'd done, I'd done okay. Like when the show was in New York, uh, it was doing pretty well. But New York is very expensive. Um, and then I had um, had like this traveling production of it where. Um, uh, originally, it was Sam and I, the guy that I wrote the show with, and then it was just me doing another thing. And that had sustained me for a while, that and speaking engagements. So I'd get all these um, basically speaking engagements. I'd get called into this fundraiser, that fundraiser, and I'd. Jewish fundraisers, I assume. Yeah, mostly. Uh, and how yeah. did you get those gigs? 
uh, through uh, through an agency, through an agent. And what would they be worth back then? They were pretty good, uh, like twenty thousand. Okay, and then what would your rap be? What would what? What would they get for their money? Um, you know, they'd get me. <laughs> no, I, I mean, mean, what uh, would you do? You had this no, play. No, so I would. So I'd go in and and basically, um, I had, you know, they usually wanted me to do like forty five minutes. Of or an hour, and so I, I'd go in and basically, and um, I crafted kind of like a PowerPoint multimedia kind of comedy um, where I'd include kind of bits of material um, from the play, um, but I would tell stories and um, and just you know crazy stories about like my parents uh, took a trip years ago to China and. Um, uh, they went, it was uh, through their synagogue, and they, and the trip was going to be a kosher trip through China, even though, <laughs> even though, um, even though my parents uh, are not super religious, but the synagogue was a kosher trip through China, and my parents were telling the story about basically how the rabbi had like a Torah uh, on like a, a tote along that he's toting through the streets of China. <laughs> Because anytime they would like encounter like unkosher food, I guess the rabbi would like open up the Torah, like read some sort of read some sort of prayer, and then and then any dish that you know silverware, flatware, plates, anything that they encountered that was like unkosher, the rabbi could immediately like turn it into kosher, you know, by pull, by whipping out the Torah. And, uh, and so I, I had photos like this was like, you know, part of the what I would do in the speaking. I had photos of like my parents, like basically this roaming pack of old Jews through China. And I mean, the photos are ridiculous because what their entire trip was, was basically searching for Chinese Jews. I'm I know. I know. I this. know. That's a whole thing. Making any of this up. When my parents, wherever you go, you got to go to the synagogue. Right. So wherever, and that's my thing with my parents is wherever they go, they basically have to find the Jew. Right. <laughs> anywhere, anywhere in the world, they basically play, you know, find the Jew. And, and so, so here they are in China, basically just roaming through China. And, and like uh, one of the things they did, they went to this, 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 this town. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, Nanking or something like this. And it's basically a, a town in China where... Uh, apparently Jews lived and uh, Jews had settled this town and and the town essentially prospered and then, you know, and there's a Jewish cemetery in China and this was worth, in my parents' estimation, like a 12-hour train trip <laughs> to China in the middle of the winter to go find like a Jewish cemetery in China. But to me, this was just comedy. I mean, this was just pure insanity. And so, you know, so I would go into these like you know, whatever speaking engagements at these fundraisers and tell these tell these funny stories, um, you know, of my upbringing and growing up. And uh, and that was essentially sustaining a, a living for me. You're listening to my conversation with Oscar winning documentarian Brian Fogel, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Hope you're enjoying this episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast. If you want to see videos, photos, and sound bites from Brian and the rest of my guests as they join me in the studio, visit at TuneIn on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, more of my conversation with Brian Fogel on the Bob Left Sets podcast. How many of those uh, speaking engagements do you think you did? 
probably over maybe four years, five years, I probably did maybe a hundred of them. Okay, very good. You know, high number. So yeah. then it stopped because you no longer want to do it or it plays itself out? It kind of played itself out and I didn't want to do it. Um, it was really um, – I was very focused on getting the film made and uh, – So you, one can still see the film, right? Yeah. Are you happy with the film? Mm, mixed. Uh, not – you know, the, I, I wasn't able to – to do what I wanted to do creatively. Um, uh, the, I, I'd come into the production with like a 116 page shooting script. And then I, I was forced to cut 20, 25 pages out of it a week into the shoot. So we literally shot like a, an 85 page script. Um, and there is nothing in the film that we didn't shoot. There's nothing on the cutting room floor, literally nothing. There, not even a single scene, nothing. Um, and, um, so, you know, it's, I, I think for what it was, there's, it's fun, there's good laughs, but it's not, um, it's not the film that I wanted to make. Not, not by a long okay, shot. Okay. So that film goes to VOD when? Um, 2000, I think it was October, something like that, 2012. Okay. And so at what point do you start riding your bike again? I was really starting to ride. I mean, before it went to VOD, the film had already been finished. So it had been, it had been finished for, I don't know, 10 months, 11 months, and they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with it. Um, and um, so I was already going, um, this was not leading to other work. You know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't leading to really any opportunities. Uh, despite the film having a pretty big cast in it. And um, so I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And um, and so that was, you know, 2012, really all of 2000, really all of 2013. And 2013 is when I probably really started spending a lot of time on the bike again. Basically, you're lost mentally. You don't know where you're going. Yeah. And you're obviously a fan of the scene, the bike scene. Does a light, you have a light bulb moment? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 I think it was a, a combination. I was, um, I was looking at other businesses, but I didn't want to be in another business. I mean, my, my, my life since I was, you know, I'm 24 years old, 23 years old has been in, in entertainment. I didn't, I don't, I didn't know anything else other than how to basically create and make things. And so I really, um, didn't want to go into anything else. I wanted to, to continue making film. I wanted to continue, um, in, in, in that world. Um, and, uh, so, I, you know, I, I grasped onto this, this idea, um, of kind of a, a supersize me movie. Did it come to you just that quickly? Like you're on your bike one day and all of a sudden you go, fuck, it supersized me on a bike. Um, it, it was a it was a it was a process. I was um, I was riding uh, bikes a lot with a with a guy by the name of Tim Comerford. You might know uh, who he is, Timmy C. He's the uh, bass player uh, for Rage Against the Machine. He was a bass player in Audio Slave. Now he's in Prophets of Rage. He's had an amazing career. And uh, Timmy and I were out riding a ton, and and we were always you know I was we were always talking about Lance, and and he knows Lance, and. Um, 
and the whole thing that, you know, Lance had confessed and just philosophically about it. And, you know, through our conversations, I was, you know, trying to figure out what, what I wanted to do. And I grasped onto this idea of basically showing that the anti-doping system is a fraud. And I remember one day we're out on the bike and I'm thinking like, hey, I'm going to like go hire somebody like a, an athlete to go do this. And Timmy's like, dude, just dope yourself, man. You got dope yourself. I'm like, yeah, you're right. He's like, yeah, man, just dope yourself. You do the drugs. You do it. You do it. I'm like, yeah, Timmy, you're right. You're right. That's what I should do. And uh, and so, you know, I, uh, the idea essentially was, was, was born that I was going to basically ride my bike, take a lot of drugs, and prove that the system was a fraud. Now, when was that epiphany? That was um, probably middle of 2013. And then it took me another year to get the first um, uh, 350,000 to start shooting. And, um, and then that year I had developed essentially like a treatment and like a proof of concept and uh, went in and started essentially talking to producers about, you know, like uh, this, this is the idea. And, um, you know, and everybody kind of loved the idea. Essentially, it supersized me in the world of sports um, with, you know, not only the— For those people who don't know, Supersize Me is the famous movie where uh, he eats— Morgan Spurlock. Morgan Spurlock, who's now gotten caught up in the Me Too movement himself— he eats McDonald's for a month and he's assessed by a doctor and sees the biological effects. Exactly. And uh, essentially in, in Supersize Me, he basically eats McDonald's for a month, which you can imagine that is not healthy for you. But, you know, he basically just turns into almost like a dying man on, <laughs> on camera. Is all that he's eating is basically Supersize Me meals from McDonald's. And the takeaway is, you know, just the destroy of how bad fast food is for you and uh, – and, you know, in, in, in my version of it, it was really going to be, um, A, what do these drugs do? B, are they good for you? Are they bad for you? But the bigger takeaway was, A, do they make, you know, do they make you a champion? Can you win if, if, if you were cheating? Which was always kind of an idea in the back of my mind, which is all the years I was racing and all the years that I was riding a bike, I was always wondering, had I done this, would have I been great? Could have I won? And, and, the, and the bigger part of it, which I thought was going to be the more compelling narrative, was to show that the global anti-doping system essentially was a fraud, didn't work, and that love or hate Lance Armstrong, the guy was a needle in the overall haystack of, of cheating and corruption in sport. And that was what I hoped to, uh, to show. And that, and that concept... Um, was essentially uh, what what got kind of um, this initial investment in. And who, so you three hundred fifty k from where? I don't want to say no, from no, not who, name, but what uh, kind of an individual was, uh, a company? It was, it was a friend. Okay. And um, could that friend afford to lose three hundred fifty thousand dollars? Yes. Okay. And um, and uh, it was uh, it was really uh, what had happened is I had um, is I had teamed up. Um, with another uh, producer who I don't want to mention uh, on the film, and uh, and he was going to come in and produce, and uh, and very early on, before we actually picked up cameras, um, uh, we got into creative differences. He was looking at Icarus and the film, and I'd named it Icarus from day one uh, before I ever picked up a camera. 
and your thinking was? My thinking was is that it, it, this, the, the story of Icarus, the myth of Icarus is basically Icarus is the son of, of Daedalus and he wants to basically fly. And his father says, great, you can fly. And he builds him wax wings and he says, hey, you can, you can, you can fly, just don't get too close to the sun or your wings are going to burn and you're going to plummet to your death. And to me, that was the story of Lance Armstrong. It was the story of, uh, of any athlete that had essentially been caught cheating, which is 99% of them hadn't been actually caught for for taking drugs, even though they were they were taking drugs, they had been caught because they they of their own egos. They had been caught because somebody else had ratted them out. They had been caught, you know, for for other various reasons. But it also was the metaphor uh, for me of of anything in life, which is the idea that that you can anything that you push too far um, has uh, an adverse effect. Hopefully that will be the effect for the current U.S. administration. But, um, but that is essentially the, the myth of Icarus, that you can, you can fly as long as you're not an asshole. And, uh, Just going back to this point, because all during the victories of uh, Lance, Greg LeMond is saying it's impossible because it's about oxygen processing and he has that process and Lance doesn't – and. He, you know, he got in trouble with his bike uh, manufacturer, et cetera. What was your viewpoint on LeMond, who turned out to be right, of course? My, you know, here's the thing. that You know, LeMond won three tours. He, he could have won five tours, but he got shot uh, by his, I think, brother-in-law hunting. And then in 1991, he basically... Uh, EPO, erythropoietin, which is, uh, increases uh, red blood cell mass, uh, became started being used by essentially the Peloton, all, all the guys who are riding. And Miguel Indurain, uh, Spaniard, uh, comes into cycling and all of a sudden he is, he is a mutant. And LeMond is suddenly slow. He goes from being the greatest rider in the world to just being a guy in the pack. And LeMond realizes that essentially that all these guys essentially are taking EPO drugs and instead of himself choosing to use EPO, he essentially decides to retire from the sport and then, you know, has a bitter bitter taste in his mouth. Um, I don't know the whole relationship obviously between Lance and LeMond but on the other hand, I mean, the guy did win three tours. He could have won five. Um, it, he had a decision to make that, you know, hey, either either – you know, either either go with the flow or, you know, or don't. He decided not to go with the flow, which was everybody starts that's taking the, That's EPO. the history. But as you're getting into the process, is he a hero or a zero in your book? Well, as a kid, he was my hero. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't know him personally, so I don't. I don't know how to comment on it. Um, I've gotten to know Lance pretty well now. Um, what's your at this late date? What's your feeling on Lance? Um, I was uh, riding bikes with him uh, all last weekend in Aspen, and um, you know he's he's complicated, but love him or hate him, I mean, the guy won seven Tour de France's. He did. He won them, and uh, and when you talk to all of and this was interesting when I was. Making the original movie, I was talking to many of the guys that, that raced against him. 
And every single one of them that I spoke to, I said, did Lance win seven tours? And I said, and they would, every single one of them said, yes. I said, did he win them fairly? And they said, yes. I said, could have you beaten Lance? And they said, no. So when his entire peer group of everybody who raced against him during those seven Tour de France victories believes that he essentially won those tours, you got to question this idea of wiping somebody else as somebody out of the history books because when you do that with Lance, well, why don't you go back to 1991 and wipe out Miguel Indurain's victories? Why don't you wipe out every single tour victory from 1991 to arguably who knows when? You know, uh, uh, and so, you know, it, it, was a, it was a selective persecution. Yes, the guy had lied. Yes, the guy had covered up the lie a million times. But it's not like the tours before him were won cleanly and it's not like the tours after him were won cleanly. So essentially he got, you know, those seven tours stripped from him um, for, for, for complicated reasons. Uh, more of, I think, kind of a, uh, a, a moral efficacy to show that this behavior isn't going to be tolerated. You're not going to be able to lie and get away with it rather than kind of a scientific reality of whether or not whether, it, you know, everybody else was doing it. Um, so, it's a, so it's a very complicated um, situation. But I do have, you know, a lot of respect for him in the sense of, uh, the guy was single-minded in his pursuit of a victory. And love him or hate him, you know, I think uh, the majority of athletes uh, to get to that level um, have to be completely single-minded in their focus. And he certainly, and he certainly was, win at all costs. And, um, and, that's, and that's what he did. And, okay, um, so getting back to your narrative, yeah. you have this person who's going to produce the movie and you have creative differences. Yeah. And so what happens after that? You part ways. So um, so I realized that, that I'm basically going into what I assessed was another Jutopia movie situation where I wasn't going to be able to, uh, to do what I wanted to do. Was that guy attached to the money? Well, what had happened is he wasn't giving the money, but my investor was attached to him being attached – and that was my investor's confidence to put in the money because, right. because this guy was, was involved. And, and this guy was seeing the film as basically like how you shoot a feature. How many shoot days are you going to do? Who's going to be your crew, your insurance, your this, your that? And I'm thinking to myself, no, no, no. This is, this is me with a cameraman and another guy. And we're just going to shoot and we're 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 going to shoot. And I have no idea where this is going. But – I don't need a, a, a crew on sliders and, and drones and, and, you know, and, and 20 people on a set. I'm just going to go shoot every day. And, um, and so I realized that this was not how I wanted to make it. And it wasn't anywhere what I envisioned in the film. And, and I realized this because I was in a conversation with a guy. He goes, so wait, so you're going to take drugs and you're going to like get super big and all buffed out? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm – I'm like a cyclist, man. I'm going to turn into a toothpick. And I'm just going to go up the mountains faster. And so he had like a, a whole different idea of what of what this was going to be. Like he he imagined me turning into the Hulk, <laughs> and I basically uh, imagined myself turning into a toothpick and flying up mountains. You know, so uh, uh, there were all these things, and and um, and I realized, and I'm like, this. I don't want to make the movie under this um, under this notion. 
So I go back uh, to my friend and I say, look, um, I want to take I want to take your money and I really want to do this, but I can't work under under this. I, I went through I went through really bad situations and I just need to be free to create. I need to be able to to just go do this, to go make this film. And uh, uh, and he basically said, go, go for it. Uh, I, I trust you. I believe in you. Go go do this. And so I set out essentially on, on my own uh, with, uh, with a cameraman, um, and then I would hire other people for the first year of the production. And at the end of the first year after I'd shot a year, I put together this, uh, it was like a 25-minute piece uh, with, uh, at the time, a guy who was editing uh, on the film, uh, T.J. Rohde, and... Uh, uh, and we put together this 25-minute piece, and um, and I'd brought in uh, an amazing uh, writer to help me by the name of Mark Monroe, uh, and kind of a, a consulting editor, uh, Doug Blush, and these two guys um, knew Dan Kogan, who's Impact Partners, and Impact finances Doc. They're one of the very few companies that actually finance documentary, truly finances them, and uh, Mark. Doug see this 25-minute piece that I did. They said, I, I think this is great. Let us get this to Dan. They get it to Dan, and the next day I literally get a call. Dan calls me goes, this is, this is amazing. Uh, what do you need? How do we help you? We want to be a part of this. And that basically started the next three years of, of, of this film's journey. And you're living off the money that's part of the budget? Yes, during the time that I was making the film. Okay, okay. Yes. so you decide to dope. When, how do you actually get the dope, and how long do you take it, and how do you feel when you're taking it? Um, so uh, I decided to, tell me again, how do I get the drugs? So I, I get the drugs. This, this is an interesting thing. So 90% of what we consider basically is doping, is the same thing that is basically being sold as anti-aging. So in the sport world, this is doping. In the in the medical science world, this is this is the fountain of youth. Is this, right? But there's that guy who's like 65 years old in every magazine who's buff, who's selling cybergenics. Right, right. Yeah, I mean it's basically the same thing. I mean what they're doing is they're selling testosterone, HGH, thyroid. DHEA, vitamin injections, IV, you know, vitamins and, you know, and uh, so so what I realized was almost all of this stuff you could get with a prescription if I found basically an anti-aging doctor. So um, I find this guy in, uh, in Vail, Colorado, uh, Scott Brandt. Uh, he's, he's in the film uh, a little bit. And I tell Scott what I want to do. And he's like, sure, I'll, uh, great, I'll, I'll prescribe you. He's not worried about any ethical issues? Well, no, because, I mean, he's prescribing me legal, you know, basically. Okay. Now I'm a guy who has low testosterone, <laughs> human, uh, growth hormone deficiency. Well, I mean, all guys essentially after they're like 25 have low testosterone. We all have human growth hormone deficiency because our bodies basically stop making growth hormone after we stop growing. So every human on planet Earth, once they're about 18 or 19, has a growth hormone deficiency. So that's what they prescribe under, you know. 
low testosterone, growth deficiency, um, basically all of our thyroids generally start slowing down as our, as our ability to process fats, which is why as you get older, it's harder to lose weight. So you have a, you know, whatever, a, a, a slow thyroid or whatever, so you can take thyroid, you can take all these things under, you know, essentially just under the auspices of, of aging. So he prescribes me all this stuff. Um, but the one thing that, that is, that is harder to get is, is EPO, erythropoietin. And, uh, uh, I don't want to say how I got that, but I got it. And so uh, just in theory, how does someone, someone has to get it on the black market or it's available and you have to get the right kind of prescription? Either, either, uh, you can, you can get it on the black market. Uh, you can get it out of China and Taiwan and all these places if you know where, if you know where to go. And basically, what what you know you can do is you you order a couple of them and and hope that one of them makes to you <laughs> make make it to you. Okay. Um, so, do you start let's say, well, you know, I got them. It's Wednesday. I'm gonna start taking all of it, or did you start with one and add another one? Well, I had uh, that was the whole thing. So you know, um, uh, Gregory Ruchankov, um, you know, I had met him. Uh, okay, let me go back to the movie. Okay, you go to the doctor in Vail, and then you go to the doctor at UCLA who says he's in and then he's out. Yeah, I mean, the, the Don Catlin was essentially out before I ever rolled a camera. Uh, he had referred me to Gregory, and I had started talking to Gregory essentially in February of 2014, which was right during the Sochi Olympics, lo and behold. Uh, so Don Catlin had decided not to be in the film before I ever started shooting. Um, and he had referred me to Gregory before I ever, before I'd ever started shooting. Okay, so when you did not, even though you had the prescription, you didn't take anything until you spoke with Gregory? That's right. I had, I had come up with a plan, and the plan was we were starting, I started shooting about April 2014. The first race in Europe, this Haute Route, which I did, was in August of 2014. So the plan was I was going to train clean which I documented and shot hundreds of hours of footage. It's all basically sitting on hard drives because none of it really made its, made its way into the movie. Very, a very little bit of it made its way into the film. I was going to train clean. And then uh, Gregor and I had a plan that basically starting in mid-December, January, the beginning of uh, 2015 is when I would go on my doping program. And that would give me enough time to basically build the protocol figure out my washout period, which is, you know, uh, when you'll test clean, when you'll test positive. So how even much at this level on the Hout route, they're testing. Well, that was – so the, the race basically says they're going to test and to my knowledge, they never tested. And so as I, as I saw that after the first year, I realized that in order to have any sort of um, – legitimacy to this, that I'd have to basically create and document my own process. And so in the, in, as I started doping, I, be, I got really religious about it, um, you know, like showing on camera, here's, here's the newspaper, here's today's date. And my entire freezer was basically filled with like frozen uh, uh, piss samples, frozen urine samples. Okay, but going back, so in terms of it, I'm just worrying – what physical effect did you feel when you started to take this drug, these drugs? It's incredibly subtle. So, you know, there's this idea of, oh, my God, you're going to turn into Superman. That's not it at all. Uh, nothing takes the place of training. Nothing takes the place of the hard work. What, what these drugs do or hormones do is essentially help your body recover 
so that you can train just as hard the next day and over day after day, week after week, month after month, because your body's recovering and you're able to do that same effort day in and day out, you become, you know, fitter and stronger and faster. Uh, so that is the, uh, the overall result. But none of that takes the place of the training and, and all the okay, hard work. So, so I, didn't, I didn't feel – it's not like I started taking all this stuff and suddenly felt like Superman. It was more like I was taking all this stuff and, and you know, on a day-in, day-out basis, I was recovering. Um, and uh, uh, like the growth hormone, whenever I would, um, whenever I would take growth hormone, um, uh, my girlfriend at the time – She'd go, did you take HGH today? And I'd be like, why do you say that? And she goes, oh, well, you smell like a baby. Um, so, and then all of a sudden that makes sense because the scent that we're responding to in puppies and babies is basically that they're making tons of growth hormone. And that's what baby scent is. That's what puppy scent is. So apparently when I was taking growth hormone, I, was, I smelled like a baby or a puppy. Um, very, very, very exciting uh, for all your listeners okay, to, to know this. But um, forgetting, you know, the training, et cetera, and your everyday life when you're taking this, this regimen, did you literally feel any different? Well, um, my libido was great. Uh, it, really, it really helps, you know, I mean, which is a, an obvious thing, which in men – your, your sex drive and everything is, is essentially how much testosterone you have. And that's why as you age, you know, you're, you're, you're not as uh, fierce, I guess. And so, so I, I was uh, – and, and, you know, I, I felt like I generally was like, you know, 19, 20 again um, where, you know, like, yeah. I mean that, 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 was, a, that was an interesting idea. Um, I also, I guess, was smelling like a baby. <laughs> so there was a but good did you feel okay or did you wake up and go, No, oh, I, I, felt, I, felt, I felt great. Uh, I felt so, great. So what about going the – other than because you mentioned what the derivative of all the – where all this comes from, are you now a believer in anti-aging with these drugs? I don't, uh, I don't take uh, – I stopped taking everything. Uh, other, than, other than I've still taken like a very small dose of testosterone – um, to, to maintain kind of a, like a healthy level, um, because my, uh, my testosterone is actually low. Legitimately. Le- legitimately low. If I go off of it, it, it's like, it's legitimately on the low side. So, uh, I take like a, a very small, a small amount, like, a, you know, like, um, once a week I'll take, I'll take a, a small amount. Um, other than that, I, I don't take any of this stuff because, the HGH, the thing is, is if you're taking HGH long term, what they say is that your forehead starts growing, that your actual bones start growing. And so like Gregory and, and guys, um, Gregory was always able to like look at guys and go, uh, he, he took too much HGH, <laughs> which is like if you look at like a lot of these football players or big wrestlers or stuff, they've got these huge heads. Well, you know, uh, apparently that's kind of a side effect of HGH, which is your, your jaw and your forehead keep growing. So you basically turn into a Neanderthal. Um, so I, you know, was like, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, so I don't, I don't take any uh, HGH anymore. Um, the EPO, which is increasing your blood, red blood cell mass, there's no reason for me to take that either because why do I need to 
you know, I'm not, I'm not competing in, in racing. I don't need that oxygen carrying capacity. Um, um, so yeah, I mean, my, uh, my experience with it is that, um, the, the public perception is very different than, than the reality. Um, and the only thing that I've, that, uh, but I, but the HGH certainly helped in recovery. That that is uh, without question. Okay, so before you find before Gregory lets out all the information of his history, what is the end of the movie going to be? Well, the end of the movie was hopefully going to be that I had beat the test. You know, the Gregory, which you know you believe and everything that he goes right. You know, you you you, you beat the test, and and the takeaway. Uh, was whoa! If you could do this, what does this mean? You know, clearly, clearly, the system uh, has got a lot of a lot of flaws in it. Um, but at the same time, I, I did that race the second year. I didn't do as well as I wanted to do. Right. And I was and I was really questioning um, my my thesis at the time. And um, but you know, Gregory was under investigation, and I had spent that. Uh, that year, while I was doping and racing, I was also interviewing all of the guys who were investigating Russia and investigating Gregory, and none of them had any idea that I was working with Gregory. None of them had any idea I was doping, and that was how I was able to get those interviews where all these guys are essentially talking candidly, not realizing that that not only did I know the guy, but that I was, you know, uh, working with him and, and doping. So what point does the bell go off in your head? Wait a second, I have another story here that I'm going to tell. Um, I would I would consider it more like a ping that had been, you know, had been ping, ping, you know, for, for about a year where where clearly there was, um, there was an elephant in the room. But I didn't know if it was going to turn into a woolly mammoth or whether it would just, you know, kind of just go away and leave because I didn't know what this investigation was going to find. And I certainly didn't know how deeply and to what level Gregory was involved because during that year and a half I was working with him before um, the film takes his turn, he hadn't disclosed that to me. I mean, he had kind of hinted that he was, you know, but he had never, you know, disclosed this. Um, so so I had, I had believed um, that there was a bigger story, and I was working on that on that on that story. That was, you know, I was I was making sure that I had that foot in the door, but I also had made a very conscious decision that if I became Gregory's like investigator, um, or if I became you know basically the guy who was going to go try to try to do this, that that I would lose what my what my premise was that I wouldn't be able to execute my plan and to me at the time um, my my thesis and also working with Gregory this incredible character was going to be enough to make for uh, an interesting and, and hopefully entertaining film um, and and so as as that story progressed um, the real turning point to me was of course uh, November 2015 where where WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, releases the, its findings of this of this investigation, and it's a 335-page report, but it is focused only on athletics, track and field, uh, and that was because WADA, uh, which is in the pocket of the IOC, the Olympics, uh, 
their mandate was only that they could investigate track and field. So even though Richard McLaren and Dick Pound and Gunther Younger had uncovered all this other evidence across other sports, the report, the 335-page report, uh, everything else was redacted out of that report that didn't have to do with track and field uh, because WADA was still trying to essentially sweep this under the carpet with, with the IOC. Um, but this report was damning enough that Gregory was forced to resign from the lab. The laboratory was suspended and Russia was banned from international competition in all athletics and track and field. And, and that basically um, followed with, with Putin on state television because now this was a, a pretty big scandal um, coming out and essentially saying that not only is Russia – uh, have nothing to do with this and we deny this entire report and everything in this report. But if anything in this report is true, um, it will be the individuals that will be held accountable and punishment will be absolute. And that was Gregory's death sentence. That was, that was it right there. And, and so I'm watching this unfold in, in the news media while I'm, while I'm Skyping with Gregory and um, we're about six days into it. And I'm thinking – and I'm trying to convince Gregory to let me come to Moscow. I'm like, hey, I want to I come. You know, this is now unfolding and, and now I'm going, whoa, this, this is the story. And Gregory's like, no, 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 no. Do not come to Moscow. And, um, and, uh, and there we are. And, and just as that is in the film, uh, he reaches a point about six, seven days in where he realizes that they're going to kill him, that, that they're planning his suicide. And I said, hey, let me – I want to come to Russia. He's like, no, 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 no. I need to get out. I need to escape. And I'm like, when, when do you want to, When do you want to go? And he goes, tomorrow. I said, I said tomorrow? He goes, he goes yeah, I, I need a ticket. Buy me a ticket. I need to get a ticket. And, and the conversation was literally happening I think probably at 10 o'clock at night, you know, my time. And I go online. I find him a ticket. I'm like, okay. Uh, there's a flight tomorrow with like, you know, like literally 12 hours after that. So I'm, I'm like, there's a flight tomorrow. Uh, this, this, he's like, good. Okay, book it. And I booked the ticket and I go, oh my God, this guy is coming. And, um, and we didn't know if he was going to get through, you know, immigration, if he, if Russia had put a hold on his visa. But um, he had a U.S. visa because he had been lecturing in the United States um, on anti-doping and the head of the U.S. anti-doping agency, Travis Tigert, had given Gregory the visa to come lecture in the United States on anti-doping even though he was the anti-anti-doping lab director. And Russia, because it was seven days after this whole report, just hadn't got around it. You know, it was so fast that they hadn't put a, a stop on his, on, his, on his visa. They hadn't put it into, you know, into Interpol to stop him from traveling. And so he was miraculously able to get out. He arrives in Los Angeles and uh, about a month later, uh, right about Christmas, I realized that this is essentially this, mm, a scandal on a magnitude that's, that's unfathomable um, and, that, and that the evidence he has essentially changes all of Olympic history. We'll pause here for a brief moment and get right back to Brian Fogel. Many of you already know that I'm a writer, but for those who think I'm just the host of this podcast, check out my archive at leftsets.com. 
In addition to reading my commentary on music, tech, and the world at large, you'll be the first to find out when we publish a new podcast. Go to leftsets.com and sign up for the newsletter. Now more with Academy Award-winning filmmaker Brian Fogel, recorded at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Now, do you think deep inside when he was working with you, he had an urge to get this story heard, or it just happened by accident? You know, I've been asked that question so many times, and I think it was a, it was a combination of things. We, we developed a, a really big trust between us. And, uh, and the trust was, was a friendship that I think crossed any boundaries of a, of a, of documentary film. And, and I think it, it was because at the time I was the subject and he was the advisor and then it flips and he becomes the subject and I become his advisor and protector. And, and so we, we had this trust and, uh, and, and he liked that it was devious. He saw me as kind of devious. He saw me as a guy who was out there to kind of buck the system. Uh, Gregory loved Armstrong, Lance, a uh, huge fan, and liked the idea that I was going to show that, you know, that Lance was just one of, of, of you know, of so many. And, and he liked that I was an athlete because he is an athlete. And, and in his mind, he had justified, which is kind of like a, maybe like a Russian thing. He had basically went, oh, Brian's an amateur athlete, so it's okay. <laughs> even, though, even, though, you know, even though everything he's doing was against all water code, he'd kind of decided that because I wasn't like a, basically a Russian professional athlete that this was not going to be a big deal, which is kind of uh, insane to think. But that is, uh, that's what happened. And, and there was never a dime of money exchanged ever. Uh, but at this late date, he's still in hiding, right? Yeah. And his family is still in Russia? That's right. And his family's safe? Uh, from what I've heard, yes. Okay, so now this all happens. At what point do you say not only do I have a different film here, but this is going to be a big story? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make hay with this film. Well, um. I knew that it was a really big story right uh, at the end of, you know, right as this was happening. Uh, the, the question really became between me and my, uh, my producing team, Dan Kogan, David Fialco, Jim Swartz, um, was how are we going to get this story out? How are we going to see to it that, this, that, that his evidence could be proven as true how were we going to protect him and how were we going to manage this crisis? And, um, and you know, and I, I truly had his life in my hand. Um, you know, we went to using burner phones. We took our edit offline. We moved our production offices four times. We moved Gregory's location four times. I mean, it, it became a, a cat and mouse game as, as the stakes were increasing. And, um, and we brought on um, uh, a crisis manager, Mike Citric, uh, very, very well-known guy. The New York Times last week had a huge front cover Sunday story on him, and, and he's considered the fixer. He's the guy that, like, every guy, like even Trump, Trump went to him in his bankruptcies. Kobe Bryant went to him with, when he was – Michael Jackson went to him. Most recently, Harvey Weinstein went to him, and, and Mike Citric basically dismissed him as a client once he realized, you know, how bad this was. Um, but so we bring on, uh, Citric and, and what we were trying to 
figure out was how we were going to get him uh, the right lawyer and how we were going to bring this story public and um, and uh, all these elements, you know, between the FBI getting involved, between Nikita Kamayov, his friend who was running uh, Rusada dying, we realized we were out of time and we made a decision that we were uh, going to go to the New York Times. And uh, Mike and Sally Hoffmeister, his, his partner, uh, basically called Dean Bacay and say uh, the editor, the, the editor, of, the the editor of the New York Times and say, um, we have the Moscow lab director and he'd like to talk. Would you like to come out to Los Angeles? And the next day, uh, Rebecca Ruiz and Michael Suritz come to Los Angeles and myself, Dan Kogan and Gregory Rachenkov sit for three days with the New York Times and we had prepared this dossier, this like 300 page, three, uh, you know, three ring binder of essentially, you know, one of the greatest gifts ever given to the New York Times. <laughs> it was, it was, here it is, guys. Here is the biggest scandal in the history of sports wrapped up in a bow in a silver box, <laughs> you know, that we've already engraved NYT. And, uh, and we sat there for three days and we presented everything. Gregory presented everything. Um, and they ran the story front page the following week, a huge story, you know, with a whole fold out. And then the following day with another front page with a fold out. And, uh, and then the whole chain of events uh, continued to, to transpire that ultimately led to Russia being banned from the Olympics. So you make the movie and the movie premieres at Sundance? Yeah, so it premieres uh, – in January of last year, January 2017 at Sundance. And um, and I did not feel like the film was finished. Uh, my creative team didn't feel like the film was finished. We, The story was still unfolding. Uh, and yet, you know, when Sundance calls, you have six weeks to finish your film. Uh, and anybody who's made a film knows that that is not a lot of time. And, and so all of a sudden you're in this crazy race to getting your sound mixed on, getting everything done. But we went into Sundance with, with a film. You know, I think everybody saw it. Sundance loved it, and uh, but in my mind, it was not. It was not where it needed to be because the story uh, was 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 still unfolding. Um, and Netflix acquires it, and uh, Lisa Nishimura and Adam Daldeo, uh, incredible partners, and and in essentially the the negotiations. The first conversation is basically uh, film's not finished and they agree and they uh, allow me and my team basically the next uh, five months to continue to work on the film to complete it. And we finished the film basically about this time last year and then it aired, uh, premiered on Netflix in August following like uh, – Sundance London and AFI Doc and a bunch of festivals that it had opened. And you're happy with the finished product? There's nothing in that film that that uh, that I don't want and there's nothing in that film that I would want to put in. Okay, so when it comes out, I mean, maybe it's an Olympic year, but it took like, a, it seemed from the outside, it took a while for the story to build in public consciousness. Did you feel that? It did, um, it was uh, it, it was certainly building in the sense that um, 
the New York Times story, the following stories, the investigation. Um, but I think as, as kind of as big as the story was in, in the global press and certainly seeing it in papers all over the world, um, I, I think a film um, and certainly, you know, Netflix being in 190 countries, 125 million homes, all of a sudden watching something on a television is very different than reading something in a newspaper. So, okay, if we're, we're reading about, let's say, the, the immigrants' crisis of the separation going on between families right now, we can read about that in a paper and go, oh, my God, that's terrible. Or we might see a clip of that on CNN and go, oh, my God, that is, that is horrendous. But in the hands of, of the right creative team, and you craft that into, into a narrative, which what we did with Icarus with music and sound and graphics and visual effects and animation and everything that is in that film, I think um, it has the, uh, the power uh, to, to really resonate. And I think that when the film came out, um, Gregory um, became a, somebody not you know, a deviant on the pages of the New York Times who had orchestrated this doping plot, but became human. And you see him for who he is as this lovable, incredible character uh, that basically is, is, is complicated, but, you know, but fully redeemable and, and, and wants to come forward with the truth and tell the truth. You see that the size and scope of the scandal in a, in a visual way what this really was and the denial of Russia. And I think that those elements um, resonated and set off kind of a whole other um, cascading, um, uh, you know, domino effect because in the, in the film as it sits right now, it says that Russia is going to the Winter Olympics. And in August of 2017, and we, when we finished the film this time last year, that was true. But the film and what it set off in, in the media and then the work of Gregory's legal team and the work of the PR team behind the film was able to keep this story in, in the media, keep showing how big this fraud was and force the Olympics to take action, which they didn't want to do. They did not want to. Right. Uh, now, from your perspective, though, because we live in a world where there are so many media messages, it's hard to break through. And you were at the epicenter, but did you feel as the months went by from August to the Olympics, could you feel the film having a greater attention in the world at large? Of course. And um, and it was a combination of the film being seen and and people like you and everybody, you know, that, that the word of mouth and, and what I've found in the last year of this is, is everybody who's seen the film, I mean, Lance Armstrong included, you know, they see the film and then they go tell every one of their friends that, oh, my God, you have to see this. Oh, my God, you have to see this. Or people have seen the film two times, three times, four times. I was, I was um, um, you know, last week, I, I, you know, and this happens to me all the time. I met somebody and he goes, so I saw the film because a friend of mine told me I had to see it. And then... Um, I made my kids watch it and then we watched it again with the entire family and then we like – I mean uh, and, and he's – and Well, they're and, just amazing and, things in the film. You know, 
when you have Putin's denial, you extrapolate that to every other thing he says relevant of doping. And when you see the scratches in the bottles from them previously being open, it's like better than any fiction movie. Yeah, and there it is. And 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 I think that you know what what happened is as you see this film, and uh, in the edit after Sundance, of course, um, Trump had come into office. There was uh, evidence that the election was hacked and, of course, all the denials of truth and fake news and stuff. But we made a a very conscious decision creatively that we weren't going to go there. We weren't going to get into the election. We weren't going to – but we wanted to leave people with – and I think think we succeeded in this, that we wanted to leave people with a, okay, if Russia was capable of this, is there any doubt? that they could do that. And also, if Putin lies about this, is there any doubt as to what else he's willing to lie about? And then, and, and hopefully mirror what has been the continuing effect of, uh, of um, you know, the, the ongoing scandal and what's, you know, going on in the Mueller investigation, et cetera. Uh, so we, we wanted to, to have that resonate, which is the themes of, of Orwell, and double think in 1984, and that narrative, which is which is truly unfolding um, on a daily basis um, in this country, and and certainly you know uh, has been in Russia. Um, so that was kind of a, a very conscious decision that we made in the creative process to leave those events out, but to hopefully leave the viewer with this feeling of of angst. Um, and kind of a, a pit in their stomach of how corrupt uh, uh, not only sport is, but uh, but the geopolitical process behind it. Well, you've certainly achieved your goal, and you've really truly made a classic film. Even though it's dated at a specific time, the lessons will live for many decades beyond that. And the obvious question, and I'm certainly not the first one to ask you this either, is now what? Um, you know, the, uh, up, up until the Oscar race, um, and, uh, the Academy Awards, uh, you know, I didn't have time to, to focus on what I was going to do next, but, uh, but I've had a lot of, um, things in, in the zeitgeist. Um, and so there's, um, there's a, a narrative feature, uh, that I'm attached to that I, I can't quite discuss yet. And but, your role uh, in that would be what? To direct it. Okay. And um, it's an extraordinary script on a on a true story that is uh, as as resonant and, and politically relevant as, as Icarus. Um, there's a couple unscripted doc series that I'm working on developing that uh, uh, that I hope to be soon, you know, uh, going out with. Um, and there's a couple doc projects that I'm uh, uh, looking to produce. Um, so I'm. I'm kind of I, – I have a lot of uh, ideas and things that I want to do and, and you know, with, with all the creative process, it all takes time to, to come together. So it doesn't – it's not like a, an overnight thing even if other people want to work with you. Um, but, I, but I have um, projects right now that I'm passionate about that I'm, that I'm working to, uh, to get off the ground. Now, I'm sure it wasn't your goal in making this film, certainly hearing you for the last hour, to win an Oscar. But in this particular case, you did, okay? And on some level, that's a pinnacle of, 
you know, peer appreciation winning the Oscar. But in this particular case, it's for a film that's not evanescent. It's not something, oh, it's a light trifle, okay? Does having been to the mountaintop, is it easy to then go back and say, I'm going to make another film? Or is there somewhat a feeling, I've done that, I need a new challenge? Well, I, I think that's, um, that's an interesting question because um, uh, this is kind of the, the second time in my life on a different level where I've felt like I kind of went to the mountaintop. And and when I had this play and it went to New York and then became a big success, and uh, um, I said to myself, well, how am I going to top this? How do I – and I didn't want to go do Jutopia 2. I didn't want to – like I, I, I was like, well, anything I do is not going to, you know, is not going to uh, have this same thing. And I, and I kind of became trapped in a, in a way because – I think that's that idea of having this whatever as, as as a musician, whatever you have this iconic album, you know, um, you know, and and how are you going to top that? And it's and it's why you know Roger Waters is still playing the Wall after all these years and, and Dark Side of the Moon because it's well, hey, you keep putting out new music, but it's not the Wall, it's not Dark Side of the Moon, it's not Led Zeppelin two, you know, it's just it, how are you going to top that? Um, and and so then to have this. Um, with Icarus on on a whole other level, uh, on a on a global level, but um, the recognition of the of the Oscar, which um, was just the most humbling of moments in my life. I just I still can't believe that I that 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 we this team uh, won won, uh, and and uh, and going on that journey and um, going on that stage. Um, Alongside Dan and Jim and David, and uh, that was that was I don't I don't know how you ever top that. So I don't I don't think I look at how to essentially top it. I think I look at how I can kind of move forward like creatively and do things um, that I'm passionate about. So for me, um, it's why uh, I'm looking to um, take a leap back into directing um, scripted feature because it won't be compared to to Icarus so it'll be it'll be another challenge for me to to use you know those my my creative um, uh, uh, skills or, or, or mind to craft something of hopefully of, of relevance and um, and and also if I'm producing in, in the documentary space which is what I'm uh, which is what I'm looking to start to do. Um, the films can live independently and not be judged against Icarus. So I know that if I go and immediately go direct another doc feature, no matter what it is, it'll immediately be compared to Icarus, and it'll be like, well, it's it's not Icarus. Well, well, it can't be because I'll never be able to replicate that story or that journey. So I need to take a step back and and go find a. Um, another creative outlet and and continue you know in the doc space um, in uh, in a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a hands off sense uh, and um, but I I uh, uh, I'm just kind of taking it a day at a time and trying not to put too much pressure on myself um, and uh, and hopefully the the next journey will be successful or if it's not I'll. I'll go back to director's jail 
and then figure out how to how to well, start again. Well, you have a long history of picking yourself up. I mean, the process may be painful, but you've always seemed to find the next thing, whether it be, you know, going becoming a comedian, doing the uh, showcases, doing the one-man show, you know, et cetera. So in any event, this has been wonderful, very insightful. I think we've gotten a 3D picture far beyond the movie and far beyond uh, other things that I've read. People get to understand who you truly are and where you came from. So this has really been great, really edifying and interesting, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Bob. It was a, a, you're a fantastic interviewer um, because in all the – interviews that, I, that I've given around this, and there's been a lot, uh, uh, I found myself uh, talking about things that I've, that I've not uh, spoken about um, in, in any interview that I've done. Well, so that was, certainly uh, puts a smile on my was, face, uh, and I was also anxious with something that has gotten so much attention. So I think we covered the basics and also the penumbra. Thanks again. Thanks, Bob. That wraps up this week's episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Oscar-winning filmmaker Brian Fogel. I certainly did. I saw the movie. You should dial it up on Netflix. Hang in there. It takes a wild twist, some of which we've covered. Your eyes will bug out, and it won't only be about bike racing. It'll be about America and Russia and the world at large. It's a riveting story, and I can't wait to see what he does next. Until that time, email me comments, questions, negative things at bob at leftsets.com. Until next time, I'm Bob Leftsets.